Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. This is episode 3172 of the Survival Podcast, and it is called simply Minimalist Homesteading, hence minimalist title, right? Just two words. Uh We talk a lot about homesteading, permaculture. We've gone into all aspects of things, all different types of livestock, from backyard and small livestock. We've done shows on rotational grazing, raising cows, raising sheep for uh, lamb. We've done like, everything you can think of. We talked about aquatics and aquaponics and aquaculture. We've talked about... Poultry. We've talked about growing trees and orcharding and farming and small-scale farming, like all across the board. And it's important that we do that because that way people pick and choose the things that will work for them in their life. And we have people that are homesteading anywhere from a small tenth of an acre lot in the suburbs up to thousands of acres of land that is being more ranched than homesteaded in some ways. But in the end, what happens is a lot of people get really overwhelmed, and a lot of folks start to feel like, I'll never be able to do this, it's too much to learn, it's too much to do. And and the reality is, you know, kind of the way that I grew up is even more than uh, than we're talking about today, because we had about a quarter of an acre garden, and we did grow a metric butt ton of, ton of food, uh, really feeding our family and, and, and several others. But when I think through the most basics of it, and I think more of, I'm thinking of my, my fraternal grandparents now, but I think more of my maternal grandparents, uh, what they did is a lot more like what we're going to talk about today. Uh, for a, a long time in America, the, the idea that you would walk, you know, down a street and look over fences and not see like a garden in every other or at least every third backyard was kind of strange. That somebody would even think that way, like it just wasn't a case. Maybe right in the city where people had tiny, tiny little lot spaces or whatever, sure. But anywhere people had kind of the space for a garden, there was a garden. And if you if you got outside of the city proper, a lot of the roads were still dirt, and there were chickens everywhere and things like that. And if you look back to the time, and you look at the fact that. Uh, people worked really hard and had long hours and things like that, just like we do today. A lot of those folks, when they were doing, I guess we would call it homesteading today, and they just called it living. And they didn't have an immense amount of time or money or materials to put into it. It had to be productive or it wasn't worth doing. And I have eight things that you can do today, and you could probably pick four to six of them, do them really well on a small space, and produce a significant amount of your own food, maybe as much as half of the food that you really need and really use. Um, maybe not. Maybe it's 20, 25%. But the, any way that that works out, that is that is two things. One, it's a reduction in cost, which is the main reason that our, our, our grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera, did this. And it on the other side of it is food security. If you're producing 25% of your own food in a very low-tech manner, Uh, on your own land, then you have 25% food security. Meaning that no matter what goes wrong, you have at least that. And maybe that's not enough for everything, but it's a significant amount of the food that you require. And we'll talk about that today and my eight ideas for you to implement. And we'll talk about doing them a little differently. Some of them you'll be like, we've talked about them before. We'll talk about doing it as the most simplistic, easiest kind of guaranteed, small space, lowest maintenance way possible. Before we do that, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Paul Wheaton's Rocket Oven Videos. Now, I've talked a lot about Paul Wheaton's Rocket Mass Heaters. I think a lot of folks are like, I think that's a great idea. I don't really see one of those going in my house. What about your backyard? You know, a lot of people have an idea they'd like to have a pizza oven or they'd like to have... Um, a, uh, a cob ovens. That's something that people really, and, and a lot of places it's really not the, the, the right technology. Those heavy grain environments, etc. Um, 
But rocket ovens can be just about anything you want. And what they allow you to do is use a very small amount of fuel to cook very efficiently and to cook anything that you would cook in an oven. And this is kind of a backyard project. Paul has two hours and uh, two, two and a half hours of video on exactly how to do this. And you can get it from his uh, web store for 10 bucks. That's the HD streaming version. You can also get a download version if you want to for a little bit more where you actually download a copy. Everybody that's bought any of these video products from Paul that I've heard from has been really happy with how, how everything just works perfectly, exactly the way it's supposed to. This would be one to check out. Again, two and a half hours of instructional video for 10 bucks, And this is the kind of project that would fit well with what we're talking about today. Rather than getting really elaborate and trying to do everything, having the ability to cook a meal in an outdoor oven. That's a pretty cool thing. So check it out today. Uh, you can learn more in today's show notes. And again, today's episode is episode 3172 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, so you can just go to the website, look it up, and there'll be a link there. Of course, it will go out uh, in the Daily Mail today, which is another reason you should be on the Daily Mail. Anyway, with that, let's, let's dive on into this today. A real quick reminder as we do. TSP Fall 2022 Workshop goes on sale Saturday morning. That's just two days away, 9.30 Central Standard Time. You need to be on the Telegram channel or group for the main uh, Survival Podcast account. That's where I'm going to drop the link. I'll give it 10 minutes. If there are any tickets still left, I'll go ahead and put it on the website at that point. I don't expect to put it on the website at all. I haven't done so for the last two years, and I'm selling less tickets this year to do kind of a little bit more intimate and a, a little higher quality event, as I decided we had some quality slips. Also, I have a video out uh, that's available. Uh, that goes out in the Daily Mail and all, uh, but I'll have a link to it in today's notes as well. That if you haven't seen it yet, it gives you all the information you need to know about signing up and what happens after you sign up, uh, and we'll give you kind of an advantage to actually getting a ticket if you're a first-timer because the people that aren't first-timers have been through the sign-up process before. It'll help you move a little quicker. Anyway, with that, let's get into this. Let's start off with why, why go to complete minimalist homesteading? Let's start off with why this is a good approach for the every, everyday person. The everyday person has a job. The everyday person probably doesn't have very much land. The everyday person doesn't know a lot of uh, of stuff. They haven't studied this stuff. They haven't worked on it. And they really need to go in a process of put in a system, perfect it, make sure it works right, then come up with another system and do it again. And then another system and do build one skill set, two skill sets maximum at a time, one skills, one system or two systems at a time. And then they need once that system's built, it can't be high maintenance. You know, if, if you if you have a garden that you have to water manually every day, you're probably not. It's probably not going to do very well for you. If you have a garden that you have to fertilize 15 times a year, it's probably not going to happen. If you're a busy person, like most people are. If you have a huge garden and it's too spread out and it makes your labor overutilized, it's probably not going to end up doing very well for you. You're just going to get full of weeds. So if we can pare down gardens to basic small gardens that grow just the things that are most useful to us, well, then we have something we might take care of. And if we want to make it bigger later, that's easy because we've perfected the skill set. So I think this is the right approach for the everyday person because it actually works. And you don't have to buy 400 books and take a course and do a bunch of other stuff because since we're only doing one thing at a time, And we're getting that thing to the point where it actually works before we do the next thing. And we're going to employ very simplistic automation in this process. It will work and everything will get done. Because the best way to make sure a thing gets done is to set it up so that you don't have to do it. So that it just happens. So I think that's why it's the best for the everyday person. But I want to talk about also why it's best for the person who is on a large property. Or who is a advanced practitioner who who knows how to do rotational grazing or what have you why it still makes sense on the larger property or for the person that wants to grow really really large maybe even have a small commercial operation or something like that because what we're talking about again is food security which i've always said is the first security 
So there's all types of security that we concern ourselves with, physical security, security of property, right, things like that. When I say security, you probably think about people breaking into your house or someone trying to do you harm or somebody stealing from you. If you think of a security guard, that's what they guard. You, you, you don't really have you know, hunger guards that guard you against being hungry, except I guess they prevent people from stealing your food. But when you look around the world and you look at the most desperate situations, the places where you really have lawlessness in the worst way, where you have roving gangs, uh, where you have a situation where the people that are from the government can do nothing to help you, but they can still do something to harm you. Well, you might be looking at Los Angeles now, but you, you get what I'm saying. They're really bad places in the world. There are places that lack first food security and then everything else falls apart. So if we want to build resiliency and redundancy in our lives, we want to build security of our food supply first. And I know you're thinking, well, Jack, if I build this great big giant ranch, you know, then, then I'll have all the food security in, in a day. What we want to do is get to a point where we have the core food security taken care of as quickly as possible. There's a lot of ways that this has been described in the past, what I'm talking about today. Some, some would call it Zone 1 permaculture design, and it, in a way it is. It could be Zone 1-2-ish in some of the little different things I'm going to talk about today. Some would call it just simply urban homesteading, but there are urban homesteads that people are get way in over their head with or you know they're they're doing small scale commercial and they're doing you know third acre gardens growing intensive greens and selling them to restaurants like there's all kinds of ways to still go overboard even with urban homesteading i i think really what we're going to do today is we're going to avoid things like eight syllable words you're not going to talk really much about chicken tractors though that might play in just a little bit depending on the options you take everything being simple to build simple to manage, and with the goal to be able to leave your home for at least five days without needing a house sitter or a caretaker. Maybe somebody will pop in, make sure nothing broke, but not having to have somebody stay at your house and take care of things for you because if you leave for a few days, the whole thing falls apart. To be able to come back, and if like it's like building a business. If you build a business the right way, you can take vacation, and when you come back, the business made money while you were gone so that your food system made food while you were gone. So I think this is good for everybody because even those of us, and I'm, a, I'm guilty of this myself, of overbuilding before you build solid on the basic core. We're going to take an approach with eight key points, eight, eight key design elements that you can incorporate. And I think maybe like a garden or wicking beds might be something everybody should do if you really want food security. And so there might be a couple here that really are kind of universal, but I think you can kind of pick and choose four to six of these. You don't have to do them all. And if you get them tight and you get them functioning and you get them working, you have a functional homestead that's a lot like what your grandparents would have recognized and not considered that's too much work for too little return. Or it's too much work for the return because the return is more than we can legitimately use. Because that happens too. I mean, even here, we end up feeding a lot of cucumbers to chickens. I'll just say that, just as one example. So let's start off with, number one, I am going to start with a garden. I don't think that would surprise anyone. I think it's the perfect gateway drug into homesteading. I think it's the perfect gateway drug into prepping. You garden right, eventually you end up with more than you can handle, so you learn some basic food storage and things like that. You also learn to cook. You get healthier. There's so much that goes with it. But I, I want to start out today with a small basic garden. Um or some wicking beds, and it has to be that you do it with automated irrigation. I don't care how you do it. I don't care if they're in the ground. I don't care if they're raised bed. Again, wicking beds are really great for this. Wicking beds can be easily automated, very easily automated. And I've got whole shows on wicking beds, so I'm not going to go through how to make a wicking bed today. I want to talk more about the management once you have this up. So what do I mean by a small garden? What, what, what does that look like? I would say a small garden would consist of something around like two four by eight beds. Two four by eight raised beds or in ground beds. Uh, so that's 64 square feet of grow space. And so if you were doing wicking beds around 64 square foot, 60 to 70 square foot of growing space. Here's why this is a great strategy. 
most people, as they put in large gardens, they're, they're trying to do things. Either they're, they're, they're doing small-scale row cropping. Like we used to do corn uh, when I was a kid, and, and it, was, it was a good yield. I mean, we were in a great climate for it. The soil was really fertile. It just worked. We kind of combined it with chickens. And, but that is probably not the best use of space for the average small landholder. Or within a zone, it doesn't fit in a zone one design on a larger property. So that's kind of out. And the other thing that people do when they get into these massive gardens is they're planting 400 varieties or 50 varieties even of vegetables. And it turns out that they don't really use all of them. And a lot of it just ends up being fodder for chickens or wasted or composted. Or... Because they're not using it as much as they thought they would, they don't take care of it, and a lot of the plants languish and die, and then they fill in with weeds. If we get into 60 to 70 square feet, we get into a place where we actually have to look at this, and we have to do what we talk about with prepping and, and create a food journal and say, what are the things that we actually buy at the store and eat, and of those things, what can we grow? So we might grow a little bit of leaf crops, crops like Swiss chard and things like that would be great. Maybe we do some filler or early planting with some plants that are more of a, a more broad yield, like sweet peas early in the, or snow peas earlier in the season. We could put some trellises up and do some vertical growing, do some cucumber and pole bean and stuff like that, or Asian long bean. But you still, you're limited on how much you're going to grow. Probably grow a few pepper plants, stake up a few tomatoes, maybe grow a few eggplants, and grow some annual herbs. And then, what, like I said, whatever else it is that you eat. Now, the beauty of this is you only have, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 square feet. You are now able to manage your soil by the square foot and manage your garden by the square foot. If you have a plant that's kind of gotten older and it's not really going to produce much for you anymore, you yank it out and you replace it. You could do square foot gardening for this or you just manage by the square foot. And when I say that, I'm not really saying, like, look at that one square foot. I'm saying small areas, pay attention. Fix the problems that you have as you have them. And, and a garden that size can produce an amazing amount of food. And it, it can be very easy to turn it into a three to eat, depending on your climate, four-season garden. Two four-by-eight beds, real simple to put a couple sticks of uh, PVC across them and throw some, some uh, heavy, heavy uh, painter's plastic, like the heaviest weight clear plastic you can get. The cheap stuff doesn't even have to be greenhouse plastic over it. And, and garden into your winter or start earlier in the spring with it. You're probably not growing a lot of squashes and large plants. Again, peppers, eggplant, some bush beans, stuff like that. But you're, you, what you're going to have in a, in a garden like this is a situation where you're growing crops where you're harvesting a little bit every day. This is perfect because what that means is that I'm going to go out and, oh, look, the beans have started to produce. They'll say, I'm just growing some bush green beans. Uh, there's about 20 green beans on there. Now, when I was a kid and I was in my grandmother's garden, I would go down with like a two-and-a-half-gallon uh, stainless steel uh, galvanized pail, and I would end up near filling that whenever I would pick green beans. We had two giant rows of green beans. One, Well, actually, two giant uh, things of beans. One was the, the greens and the others were the yellows. My grandmother grew both of those, the wax beans. And uh, so you, you don't have that huge volume to, to deal with. But, like, you're not my grandmother who was in a single-income household and could just take the, all that time and do nothing but can until they filled up the cellar. And then we had food to, to share and we had food all through the winter. But what you have is, okay, I got ten green beans. Oh, look, there's a pepper that's ready to pick. I thought that would be ready yesterday. Oh, let's take some Swiss chard. We'll take those leaves. They're going to go in the salad. We'll take the stalks. We'll chop them up, right? Uh, and maybe there's a, an Asian eggplant. Well, guess what I'm eating tonight? I'm sautéing that collection of vegetables. And maybe I have a little bit of lettuce growing or some other greens. That goes in with the chard. Now there's my salad. Put my meat on with it. I'm done. And so instead of this... This idea that I have to go in and get this large harvest. Now I'm just harvesting and using and harvesting and using. And doing what I just said. Going out to the garden, a little bit of fresh basil for the salad. That's five minutes. That's five minutes. So you come home from work, you kiss the kids, the dog, whatever, the wife. And you get ready to make dinner. Maybe one spouse makes dinner. The other spouse goes out and forages in five minutes. 
And this is the interesting thing, and this is a place where people fail to get the yields in gardens that they could. And small gardens like this, used this way, prevent this from happening naturally. And that is, it's, it's counterintuitive, but the more you harvest a lot of these vegetables, the more they produce. You have a bunch of beans hanging on a bean plant. They could get a little bit bigger. You're waiting for more beans before you harvest. The beans are like, I have lots of seed. I have fulfilled my obligation. I'm an annual. The next generation is secure. I'm good. You pull all those beans off, and the bean plant's like, shit. I have no beans. I have no children. I have to reproduce. So they start reproducing. Greens. You cut greens, and they come again, and they, they go into like a, a, a upper growth mode. A lot of plants, as we prune them, they grow more. So harvesting actually gets us more. But what happens is we get into prepper mentality and like, well, I want to wait. Don't wait. It's ripe. It's ready. It's at the peak of time to eat it. Eat it. And now, not only are we having this easy-to-manage, small-scale system that's producing ongoing production for a large part of the year. At least You should be able to do this at least three seasons, spring to fall. We're eating the food fresh all the time. It's not being picked, put on the countertop or in the refrigerator, and it's just not so fresh when we eat it, or it ends up sitting there long enough that we're like, oh, crap, I forgot about that, and you throw it away. So first one, small garden or wicking beds, and automate your irrigation. Again, I'm not going to go into exactly how to do these things today. Just talk about them and how to use them. The next is, and I think this would be a, this would be a good universal one, an indoor hydroponic system. Whether it's a Kratky system, a small pump-driven system, something that can grow you in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 plants, right? And 20 is enough. A lot of people, 20? No, 20 is plenty. If, if you're going to primarily use it to grow food to eat, honestly, you could grow 18, six varieties, okay, that are about equal growth uh, timing, And that way you can have kind of three phases of growth, like young plants, uh, middle plants that are, maybe you're already harvesting, older plants that you're harvesting, but it's pretty going to be soon time to move those back and then start new starts. It's not a very big thing. I mean, you're talking something like a two-foot, two-foot square rack that's, you know, uh, not probably as tall as you are would do that fairly easily. If you're growing greens and things like that, there's no reason to let them get full size. Uh, my, my friend David, who has a, a twisted sense of humor, often says everything tastes better as a baby. When it comes to vegetables, that's definitely the case. This allows you to have maybe two or three varieties of lettuce. I think in a system like that, if you're not growing arugula, you're just, unless you hate arugula, then don't do it. You're kind of, you're kind of wasting one of the coolest, easiest, most high nutrition, best tasting, uh, fast growing greens you could have. So a variety or two or three of lettuce, an arugula, some fresh basil, and then maybe something a little bit exotic. You know, p take your pick. A wasabi uh, arugula is a really cool thing, or some radish or something like that. So, so then you have this ability that when your summer gets to the point where those salad veggies aren't really doing very well for you, okay, because it's too hot, you start growing those indoors. When you get into your winter... And you're not going to produce your peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that anymore. But you can still have fresh salad. And there is, guys, it is worth doing a small hydro system to have, in my opinion, fresh arugula, fresh basil alone. Those two things. And definitely fresh basil. And you can grow so much basil so easily. You can buy a couple bucks worth of seed and you can grow basil for years Very simple, very inexpensive. I'm not going to go into how to do hydro systems. We talked about them a lot. But keeping in mind that one of our goals is to be able to go away for a four or five day short trip, come home and not, and everything's not dead. This, I would really consider not doing crack key for this. Doing something with a big enough reservoir, pump driven system. It doesn't have to run continuous. It can basically be a cracky with a, with, where it keeps getting topped off every time it runs and flows through. You could do it as ebb and flow. You could do it as NFT. Those are, you got the pipes and they're in and the water's running just through the bottom of the pipes and down through a series. However you want, you can do this. Set it up with your grow lights. Put it on a timer. Now, again, the pump doesn't have to run all the time. Put the pump on a timer. Just make sure you build it away. It's not going to clog, overflow, and flood your house. And now we got these new lights that I brought to you guys this week that are white lights that are not annoying. 
That you can walk away from that for five days. You might want to fill up your hydro reservoir, but you can walk away from it for five days. Here's the other thing about it: it's not very big, it's not going to take up very much space. There's no need to run it year round. When the th things that you would grow in it are peak outdoors, don't run it. Take a break. It's a it's a simple thing of clean it out, put everything. You can leave it where it is to put it away. Basically, if you put it in the right place where it's not in the way, right? But you just basically drain it, turn it off. And then, when, you're, when you need it, it's there. Mix up some hydro fertilizer, turn it on and go. And then you have this continuous cut and come again harvest of just, and I would just grow greens with it, because we're keeping it simple today. But what else do you have? What else do you have? Okay, so you got enough to put in 20 plants. You're coming into your summer, or your, your spring. It's time to put out your peppers and your eggplants and stuff like that. Uh, it's going to be time in four weeks to six weeks. And Jack's doing shows on seed starting. There's your seed starting system. There's your seed starting system. The first time you start your seed, your, your plants, in a system like that, it just paid for itself versus buying plants at a nursery. Right there. Done. So you're going into your fall. It's August. If you try to start your kale or your broccoli, your, your winter fall crop, Outdoors, it's not going to do well. You count back from when it's going to be cool enough to put those plants out, say four weeks, you pop in 20 broccoli plants or 20 cauliflower plants or 20 kale plants or 10 and 10 or whatever it is. And now you have your broccoli or whatever, your cold crops, your cold season crops started indoors. As your summer is ending, We're pruning back our peppers. We'll just, we won't kill the peppers right away. We, they can make it all the way to the last frost. Prune out all the underbrush. Go in and start interplanting that broccoli. And as soon as that first frost is going to come, and you know it's coming, we go pat, pick those peppers and those eggs plants a day or two before and just cut that plant off at the bottom and let the broccoli take over. And they're there. And we did no real hard work. We weren't get you know we weren't like listening to Jack oh shit it's time to start it's just in it's designed into the system so that indoor hydro system is food security of itself but it's also a system of plant propagation and again I'd start small because if you decide you want it bigger you just build a second one or you expand the first one and the thing about hydro when you go big you end up needing big reservoirs and you got sloshing around liquid. Much easier to stay really small with your indoor hydro systems unless you have a dedicated space for it. And then nobody gets mad. Mom's not mad. Dad's not mad about you know One spouse or the other is not mad about it. It can sit in a corner in an extra bedroom. You have complete climate control that way. Just a really simple thing to do. Next would be, and again, I'm not saying to do all these. I'm saying to pick and choose from this group. I would say one livestock choice that can be automated to be cared for for a week. You can go away from a week and nothing will die. Maybe it's not optimum, but nothing will die. For this, in suburbia, I'm going to say probably the four animals that are best suited for it would be rabbits, quail, muscovy ducks, or chickens. And regular ducks would work too, but regular ducks are really noisy and really messy compared to Muscovy ducks. So that's why I'm going to favor the Muscovy here. Muscovies are also a larger bodied animal, and in my opinion, they're better eating than mallard breeds of ducks. And they will not give you as eggs as th throughout the year as much, but they'll give you a ton of eggs when they're giving you eggs. I have a whole show about Muscovy ducks being probably the perfect po homestead poultry. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com if you never heard that episode and put in Muscovy Uh, M-U-S-C-O-V-Y, you'll, you'll be able to find it within, you just look at a couple, three results, and you'll be able to figure out which one I'm talking about. Um, rabbits, you can get basically hopper feeders for rabbits, and you can load them up with pellets and some Timothy hay and another one and stuff like that, and you can set rabbits up where you could leave for a few days. I don't know if five will really work. I've never kept rabbits, but I think you can make that work. And it's also the case that, You could have someone that is a caretaker without having someone on site. You certainly could have somebody come over. You put one scoop of pellets, you know, come over every other day, check on the rabbits, make sure the water's full, put one or two scoops of pellets, and there's the pellets, and there's a scoop, and they're in a bucket with a lid on it. You don't have to, the person doesn't have to know what they're doing to handle it. 
My caution with rabbits is heat can be mur literal murder on them. So thinking about your climate, the times of year you like to travel, and, and, and things like that. Uh, as far as cold weather as well, like babies can, you know, new, new does are not as good as taking care of babies. My weakest place out of all of these animals, because I've not kept them, is rabbits. So I'm not saying that it is a perfect animal, but I think it could work. And I will also say that it will produce you more meat than I would say almost all the others. Quail, would, it depends on what you do with quail. And again, quail, I've done whole shoals on quail, even some recent ones. Put quail in the search box, you can learn how to do it. Chickens, for this application, I'm looking at coop and run. I'm looking at coop and run and an automated coop door. And during times of the year where it's pretty temperate, if you have a covered top to your run, leave the door open. Be, if, they, if, if predators can't get into the run, who cares? Who cares about closing the coop? Just leave the door open. Make sure that they have enough food. This you'll learn by monitoring their feed. If you're thinking, I want to be able to live for five days, you get a hopper feeder. You fill it up, and you don't put food in again until it's empty. And you look at how long did that take. And now you know your birds aren't going to starve. They're not going to be eating each other or something like that. And if it doesn't last that long, then you, you beef up your, your, your food supply. You can also get automatic feeders that will spill out a certain amount of feed. If they're in a run, there's no need, and, and you've got deep litter, there's no need at all for you to have to worry about cleaning anything in a five-day period. There's very little maintenance with a well-managed coop and run with the right appropriate number of birds to the coop and to the run. Uh, quail, you can do quail in a stacked system, indoors in a garage or an outbuilding. You can, uh, you can put water plumbed into a, a top pressure tank and the, so that you're not pushing pressure because, so here's the thing about all the, like the, the, the little dip cup waterers and stuff like that. If you hook them directly up to the pressure of like your, your, your city water or your well water, just because you turn a valve down, it reduces the amount that comes through, but it doesn't re reduce the pressure buildup. What happens is the little dipper that the bird is supposed to peck to get water, uh, either it's hard to move and actually get water out. When they do move it, it sprays. So what you do is you take something like a five-gallon bucket, you put it up above the, the waterers. You put a, a float valve in it, And as it drains water just from gravity pressure down to your waters, your city water or your well pressure water just squirts into that tank, which has a lid on it, so it doesn't matter if it sprays, and it fills up until that float valve stuff's off, and it doesn't ever run very long because it's just constantly keeping it full. So now water's forever. I mean, your, your water cups and all should be cleaned out once in a while, but it's forever. And so then all you need to do is figure out how much feed the birds need to have access to, And what I would do is while you're gone, I wouldn't have a, I would just, you see, because you can plan your grow out of your meat. And so if I'm going to be going on vacation next month, I'm not starting a meat run of birds right now. Or I'm going to start it at a time where I know I can process them all before I leave. And that can all be very, very automated. Now, I'm not saying do rabbits, quail, ducks, and chickens. I'm saying doing rabbits or quail or ducks or chickens. That's what I'm saying to do. And all will give you the potential for a meat yield, uh, either give you a meat yield, the potential for a meat yield, or an egg yield. So ducks and chickens may not give you a lot of meat. You only get them when you cull, but it can be re set up really, really simple. And now you've got one place to put a waste stream to, and that is feeding your livestock. If we're using rabbits, there's some things that we can do that we'll talk about in a minute to provide feed for them on site. It's why I think of all the backyard livestock, they may be the best if you can work out a system that works for you. Because with some fodder trees and a, and a, and a, and a non-mulching bag mower, I can produce most of my rabbit's feed right on site, and then rabbit pellets are cheap, and we always have some in reserve just in case. Um, but one livestock choice. This is not in everybody. In fact, some people shouldn't do it. If this doesn't seem like it's right for you, don't do it. Or wait till it's the last thing you have to do out of the list. Next would be grow some perennials or annuals that grow like their perennials. Very, very low work to keep them going. 
as your basic survival crops. So what do I mean uh, by that? It, uh, plants that would fit this niche would be you'd have like a little, you know, ornamental looking garden bed with a couple pop-up sprinklers or something in it that are on a timer that you don't have to take care of. And instead of growing sunflowers in it, you would grow something like Jerusalem artichoke. So five or six pieces of Jerusalem artichoke will grow you more Jerusalem artichokes than you'll want to use. But if you ever need them, they're there. And they're an attractive plant while they're in season and growing until the end of their life cycle. And if you go in and harvest as much as you want in all but the, the most incredibly cold climates, I mean, we're talking tundra-level stuff here, there will be inevitably some pieces of them left behind, and then they will come back on their own. So even though they're an annual, the tubers that they leave behind will grow the next generation, self-receding annual. That would be an example of a great survival crop that would go along a back row. Um, sweet potato would be another crop that we could grow in a very similar way. We, you know, Do some just landscaping. There's no real need to use it unless you need it, and it's there, and maybe we harvest some every year. But sweet potato, so easy to propagate, to make slips. Take a sweet potato, lay it on its side in a dish. It'll start producing slips. So you slip the slips off. We put them in a glass of water. It's going to all be done on, a, on the side of your sink. We get a few slips going. Once they start going, we can make as they, the vines grow, you can snip some off and root those and make as much of it as you want every year. You have this ongoing sweet potato production system. Maybe we're only growing four or five vines a year. We're only growing, that'll give us you know maybe ten tubers. But since we have some every year, if things go south, we can ramp the production up on that. The greens are edible. We could do something I said, like put a simple little arbor in somewhere and a little path in your landscaping and put those 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 uh, sweet potato vines up and over that. There's a lot of ways we can grow those that are we're getting we're losing the simplicity here, but we can do towers where we keep adding soil and we keep running the vines through it or what have you. But we don't have to do any of that. Now there are some things we're going to talk about in a second, some other options here that something like a sweet potato would do really well with. Okay, but crops that we can we can put in and say they're there if we need them and we don't have to do a lot of maintenance. I would also say plants like blackberry and raspberry and stuff like that, growing those instead of, you know, box bushes from box stores would be good without really getting too fussy. They don't need a lot of support and help especially if you're growing the right plant for the right climate and you've got mulch and automated irrigation, they do really well. Or that would include things like Instead of trying to do an orchard, planting a peach tree and an apple tree that's self-fertile. And just having a tree that fruit comes off of. That's the, those, the dead, simple, perennial or annuals that act as base survival crops. That We're happy to use them, but we don't really have to. And we don't lose much by not using them. The next one would be, I really think it makes a lot of sense for most, not all people, to think about a sim single, simple aquatic system. With pump and power redundancy, what do I mean by that? You have more than one pump. If one pump dies, the, the, the fish in the system do not die. They, they live. And you have some form of backup power to it. The, the backup power could be that you have a direct drive solar-powered pump that only runs when the, when the sun is up. And you still would have your on-grid, regular, like Danner Pumper, uh, uh, you know, Allied Aquatics Pumper, what have you. And that way, if you're gone and the grid goes down, like just because somebody dug something up with a backhoe they weren't supposed to because it happens or there was a storm or whatever, as long as that pump runs, that, that solar-driven pump runs during the day, it's probably going to be okay. There could, there's a lot of ways to do redundancy here. We could have... If we have a shop air compressor in our garage, we can actually plumb from that and have a timer that just drops a little bit of air out of that. And there's a way to do that I won't get into today. But you, basically it drops into a second chamber that's pressurized and then bleeds off at about three pounds. And that'll, that, could, 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 that process could happen twice a day. And most of the day and most of the night there would be air bubbles going into that pond. That's going to be in my course when I finally release it. Yes, I'm still working on it, but we're going way simple with this today. All I'm talking about is some level of a small in-ground pond, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood between... It, here's my thing with ponds. I say small. Nobody's ever like, I wish my pond was smaller. And it doesn't cost much more to put a 1,000-gallon pond in than it does to put in a 200-gallon pond because the money's in the pumps and the plumbing and things like that. 
So the biggest easy-to-put-in pond you can do, make it look pretty, make it look like something. If you sell your house, a yuppie wants to put koi's in it. You can put bluegills in it. You can put you know, uh, bullhead catfish in it. Those are my two best recommendations here. And now those wicking beds that we talked about can be plumbed into it. We can automate that. An $8 timer goes off once a day on a little pump, fills up the wicking beds. Now we can leave. The wicking beds are taken care of. Right? We can put a float valve into the pond. That can go, um, if you have a well, that can go on that. If not, you're going to have to come up with a dechlorinating system. Uh, but that's pretty easy to do on a small pond of that size. We're going to put as much shade on that pond as we can to reduce evaporation in the first place. And you shouldn't have to touch it on a daily basis. And you certainly should be able to leave for four or five days, and everything should be okay if you do all that. The reason we want to do that is it opens up so much opportunity for us. I said we want to keep it shaded. Well, now we can take a plant like um, water hyacinth, or we can take a plant like azola, and we can put that into the pond. That will provide that shade. That will reduce that evaporation. But now we have a feedstock for compost systems, and we have a feedstock for livestock. We can put one little flower pot in a system like that, put a couple seeds of a plant called Ipamira aquatica in there. And it'll be kind of slow early in the year, but when it warms up, it will that one flower pot will produce a ridiculous amount of food. I need to, probably before this weekend ends, put up just a picture of what my, uh, my big pond, my 4,500-gallon pond looks like right now with Ipamira aquatica. It looks like it's just growing out everywhere. It's like covering like, it's covering like 50% of the surface area of the pond. But it's growing out of two flower pots. Two flower, two like two gallon flower pots are growing more. I could never eat it all now. I'm going out there every day today. I'm going out there, I'm sorry, every day today, every day this time of year. And I'm cutting huge amounts of it. And I'm just throwing it to the ducks. But it's a delicious plant. It tastes a lot like the sweet potato greens, but you can eat the stalks. And it's almost two yields. Because the stalks are going to be something that we're going to cook more like a bean as to how we're going to handle the cooking, and the leaves are more like you would wilt them in. So the sweet potato greens, the leaves are edible, and they're very nutritious and quite delicious. But the stems are useless to us. But the Iapimera aquatica, we can do that. So a small aquatic system is something I would consider. Let me say that I would probably not do it first, unless I'm going to stack it with a wicking bed system, which I think is a fantastic thing to do. It's a more advanced strategy, But it makes my eight easy things to do. And it, it, one of the reasons that I got so big in aquatics, I'm, I'm a fish guy to begin with, and I know that water is life. But one of the f most fascinating videos that I ever saw, Bill Mollison instructing when he was in his prime, so old, grainy, you know, I mean, this is before HD, everybody had an HD camera in their pocket on their phone. Um, this was from like the 80s. And he was talking about how he's, how sustainable and how productive small-scale food systems were in Asia. And he said one of the reasons was, if you give a Chinaman a teacup, he'll put a fish in it. And then he explained how aquatic systems create so much diversity of life and production and beauty. And I was like, I have to include this in everything that I do. I have to have some sort of water feature in everything that I do. And all the people I know that have taken the time to put it in and do it right are like, I'll never not have it ever again. And so that's why I include it here. Next, um, fodder trees grown as ornamentals. Now, this is not something I think everybody should do. But maybe most people should do even if they don't have livestock. One of the things we should think about is, is community. And if things go sideways, what do we have to barter with? Well, if you have rabbits, and I have food for your rabbits that's basically free and you don't, maybe I can get some rabbit from you. You see how that works? So that would be one thing. The other thing is they're just trees. And the three primary fodder trees that Nick Ferguson talks about are white mulberry, which also produce berries, which is another survival crop that we can just rely on from a very hardy, hardy tree. Um, hybrid willow which is incredibly easy to grow, and it's a beautiful tree, especially when coppice, so it's a landscape feature. Okay, And then hybrid poplar, which we can actually grow that really big. It's just a big, beautiful like tree. So I don't know how much of that would fit, depending on the land that we're talking about. But what you have then is, let's say that you get to a point where you start to realize, like I can't afford to buy meat 
at the rate that I need anymore. And at this point, I've done all these other things or most of these other things Jack's talking about today, and I want to add rabbits. Okay, well, if you're planning to feed your rabbits now with some fodder, okay, you've got a while before you're feeding your rabbits with fodder. If you've already established your fodder trees, you put in some rabbit hutches and you're in business. If you don't ever put the rabbit hutches in, you just have beautiful trees that are low maintenance and very hardy. If you sell your house to, to Karen the blue hair, you just have beautiful trees that she likes. So I, I don't see a real downside to putting in some fodder trees if you have extra space where you would maybe want to grow trees maybe near your six-foot privacy fence that you can still see your neighbors over. That would be an example there. And so instead of crepe myrtles, maybe you're doing coppiced willow or coppiced poplar or coppiced mulberry because they, as they develop form, they are really beautiful trees, and then they're in place. Next, I think everybody should have this one. And I think this is something you do kind of right off the bat, commensurate with any other system you're doing, and that is a composting solution that works for your waste stream. And so there's tons of ways to do compost. I love the kind of Johnson Sioux-like compost method I have now. I also have a 12 by 16 foot chicken coop that has to be completely wrecked out of bedding once a year. That's a lot of material. It's literally tons of material. So it lends itself to this large-scale composting solution. I also have a pit. It's just some old cinder blocks made into a square. And it's just so they don't throw everything away. And I throw everything that's a waste stream for composting in there. And the chickens and the ducks pick, pick at it. And I throw the water hyacinth plant and these other water plants that I feed my ducks and my chickens into that too. And I combine those. And you know what? That works for me. It's not what we're talking about today though, is it? So what would be a waste stream that would work for you? A waste stream that works for you uh, could be a black soldier fly bin. It could be a worm bin. It could be very simple. It could be my old school method using garbage cans. So you, you, you just simply take a garbage can, like a tough, like a 32-gallon toughy gar garbage can, drill some holes in the bottom and the top. This is in the MSB. Put a piece of pipe down the center of it. And just start throwing your waste in there. And when you have excess yard waste, leaves, grass clippings, whatever, you just throw them in there. You keep throwing it in there until it's full. Okay? So all your kitchen waste, you just throw, except don't put meat in something like this. You just throw it in there until it's full. There's a lid that goes on it so it doesn't dry out. And you build two of them. And when one's full, you start filling up the other one. By the time you fill the second one up, the first one's done. If you find that you have enough of a waste stream that that's not the case, you put three in. I don't see any small-scale household out using three, a three-system like that. That would be another one. I don't care what it is. My, my brother-in-law, who's not really a gardener or whatever, they just have a pile. They just throw everything in the pile. The pile gets to a certain size. They start making another pile. And then they take the compost and they put it in their flower pots. They don't even garden. But, but they get compost that way. All of it works. All of it works. So there should be a compost system in place that's using and recycling your nutrient and fertility and keeping it on your land instead of exporting it as waste. And we can always expand or do more when we have a larger waste stream to harness. But this way we're, we're, we're increasing our fertility and our soil life web very, very simply. And I do think it's worth everybody considering a seasonal-based meat production system. And, and, and here's a, a couple of ways that this might work. We might, they said no chicken tractors, but we might make a small chicken tractor. We might be as simple as go to the feed store, tractor supply, whatever, every spring, and buy a dozen Cornish cross chickens and throw them in there and raise, you know, throw them in a brooder for a few weeks, throw them out in a little backyard chicken tractor for, you know, an eight-week cycle and process them. We just put a dozen chickens in, 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 into the uh, freezer. And pastured chicken generally is selling whole bird for around $25 a piece. Right? So we do the math on that. It's real easy, isn't it? It's $300 worth of chicken. Now, it's not $300 worth of Tyson or Purdue chicken, but it's $300 worth of pastured chicken. And it's a very small amount of work. And I know what you're thinking. Jack, you said I should be able to leave my house for a week if I need to. And you should. So all, but this is why I'm making it seasonal. So all we're going to do is raise those animals at the time of year where we're not taking our trips. 
We could also do this with Quail. We could have a, and this is, this is one of the things that makes Quail such an amazing product for this type of system. It's going to produce a large waste stream, okay, for our composting system. Worm bins with Quail cages are amazing composting systems. Amazing composting systems. We have an egg yield on an ongoing basis. Those eggs can sit, they have the cages where the eggs roll forward. They go in a little egg collector spot. That way the quail don't mess them up. They can sit there for five days at an average temperature and they're still good to eat. But we can incubate our meat birds a couple times a year and we can produce a couple hundred meat quail doing very little work and the processing is incredibly fast. And if we had a black soldier fly Uh, bin as our compost solution, we could just throw all the quail waste in there and we make even better compost. Or we can dispose of it in some other manner. We can turn it into dog food. There's a lot of things we can do, right? There's a lot of ways to dispose of waste, but that would be another um, seasonal meat production system. Muscovy ducks, they will brood for you and take care of the baby. So all you have to do is make sure there's enough food while they're brooding And you can allow them to brood in a, in a you can run, run those guys in a coop and run system too. You can set up a couple uh, bathtubs for them with drains and have those drains go to a few different places passively with pipes to water your bushes and shrubs. And you can let them bring up one group a year for you, harvest as they mature all the ones you want to eat. And I promise you this, if you live anywhere near where other people are, If you put Muscovy ducks on sale on Craigslist, you will easily get $20 a bird for the girls, and you'll actually get more for the drakes if you have immigrant people around you because uh, certain uh, immigrant groups really love the drakes as a big meal piece. So generally with poultry, when you're selling off live animals, you get less for the drakes or less for your roosters, etc. But the guy that I got my Muscovies from this year told me that he gets about $20 for a female, And he gets between $35 to $50, depending on how big the drake is, mostly from, um, I think he said, Taiwanese families that like to use them as a, a thing that live in his neighborhood. But you can definitely sell them. There's plenty of people that want to get into this. So you would allow them, because they might raise more than you want to process. You would allow them to raise as many as you wanted to pro or as many as you want to process or what have you. Let them do all the work. Just if you have to go away during that time, you just have to increase your field feed that's available to them. Make sure your space in your run in your coop system is enough to accommodate for that, right? So that it's bigger than necessary the other part of the year. You harvest what you want. Maybe you select a few new birds. Occasionally, maybe you rotate a drake or some hens from other people. Maybe do some exchanges on Craigslist to keep your genetics diversified, but really simple. And any beyond the number you want to process you sell, and you use that for money to pay for the feed for the ones you keep. There's a, just so much like this that can be done. And it really is all most people need to produce a ton of food. Now, if you're sitting here at the end going, this is supposed to be very basic and simple, and now you feel like in 50 minutes Jack has made me feel overwhelmed again, remember the process. The process, pick one. So the one we're going to pick maybe for the first one is You know, maybe it's not a garden if we're going to get on this process right away. If you're like, I've been on the fence long enough, I need to do something. This time of year, I would build the indoor hydro system. That's what I would build right now. I'd build an indoor hydro system. And that's something you can do on a weekend. And, and the, the day you build it, within 21 days, you should be eating out of it. Okay? So I would build that, and I would get good at that. And in my fall, winter, early spring, I would put my garden beds in and get those ready, and then I would start gardening going into next season. Now I've got an indoor hydro and plant starting system, and I've got garden beds, and I can figure out a compost system, and I've got three of those eight done with no stress. And I need four to six of them to really make a significant difference in my life. So if it was me and I was doing that, I would probably go with putting in some sort of aquatic system next and I would be doing my if I was only going to be gardening you know 70 -ish square foot I'm doing automated wicking beds but that doesn't mean you have to you could do simple in-ground garden beds or simple raised beds four by eight's nice you got eight foot board lumber you got three of them you cut two of them in half 
you got a four by eight box, you're ready to go. Really simple. That's why the size is so popular. Um, and then maybe you look at going into, you know, you could easily then plant some fodder trees. Nick will have them for sale in the spring. Or the spring. So you, you, you put in some fodder trees. That's really not any work ever again because you're going to automate the water on it, right? Or if you live in a climate where you don't really have to irrigate trees once they're established, you can hand water them for the first season, make the kid do it, give them a dollar a week for it or something. And then that's just, that's really, you're not thinking about that very much, right? And, that, you know, somewhere in there, maybe we think about what livestock we want, if we want livestock. Let's just say in this particular person that's listening to me right now, I livestock is out for you. Okay, just don't do that. Well, there's not a lot left. The seasonal meat production thing isn't going to happen. But here's the thing that a lot of people miss. The seasonal meat production thing might be perfect for the person that doesn't really want livestock, but wants meat. If you can find a source of baby chickens that are even a good dual-purpose meat bird, even if it's a 12-week process and you run them through your summer or through your fall, whatever works for you, and then you process them and you're done for the rest of the year. You're a chicken farmer, small-scale chicken farmer, three months out of 12 months. That would be another option that you would have. But let's just throw that one out, too. So we've got the garden, we've got the hydro system, we've got no livestock. All we have left out of all my stuff, then, is perennials or annuals that grow like perennials. So that's putting some bushes and some shrubs in, putting in some um, a little Jerusalem artichoke patch. And then you can do whatever you want. Then, then what happens is people start to figure out the stuff that they enjoy so much, it's not like work. Some people will find that they really like playing around with shiitake mushroom logs. right? Or some people will figure out that, you know, I, I really dig the aquatic system and you expand that. Some will say, you know what, uh, there really is a great spot for a little greenhouse here and build a little greenhouse. But at that point, you, you, you have the ability to produce literally a ton of food. And when I say a ton, I mean a ton. I mean, if you weighed every single item, there's no reason a system like I've just described can't produce more than 2,000 pounds of food a year. And so this is as involved and exhaustive or as simplistic as you make it. And I did this show today for a few reasons. One, it's my last standalone show till I get back from Self-Reliance Festival. And I wanted an easy one. So it's not a live stream today. Old, old school, just audio podcast only. And it would, it would just seem like the right time of year to give you guys something you can act on. And every one of you like, can act on one of these things right now. And this is an ideal solution. I, get, I hear from a lot of you guys who are like truck drivers and stuff. You're gone all week, every week. You're only home on the weekends. And you want to have something like this. And you don't want to die when you're go while you're gone. But you also don't want to spend all day every Saturday while you're finally home working on it. These systems don't have to be that way. Again, that 32-square-foot bed, even once a week weeding, is pull, pull, pluck, pluck, pull, throw in the compost, done. Or pull, pull, pluck, pluck, pull, drop back on the soil and let it go back to the earth from whence it came, done. Maybe you'll end up wasting a little bit of growth. That's okay. Maybe you get one of the neighbors, hey, check in and, and, and do some harvest. And actually, your harvest will be better when you get home. Like I said, harvesting these systems makes them more productive. If you have problems with a particular insect pest that's really driving you crazy, you can easily just throw insect netting over a 32-square-foot bed and net the whole bed. It's easy to water. It's easy to automate. A few fruit trees or a few fruit shrubs or bushes or whatever and just a few head sprinklers and one timer. Bury a few PVC pipes, put those head sprinklers in, boom, done. Throw some mulch around them, let it be. It can be that easy. And then again, if you want to start really building from there and you want that quarter acre urban homestead that is so productive people can't even understand it, something like would be in a Jeff Lawton video, you're still better off doing doing the initial work the way I designed first. Because that's going to give you kind of your flow and your process, but
but it's going to build the security early. And for a lot of people, the other thing that it's going to do, it's going to build confidence and skill set in before we go big and get over our heads. And we'll make little mistakes quickly and find little remedies quickly so that when we go to larger systems, we've already made the mistakes and we don't make them again. One of the things to know about livestock, when you get in livestock, you're going to kill some of them. We still kill some of them like we do our best not to. Some of them, basically, they're going to kill themselves, and you're going to be unable to prevent it. We have baby chickens running around all the time. Eventually, they start running around to where they get where the duck tanks are, and sooner or later, some of them will drown themselves. It it happens. Uh, Marjorie Wildcraft, who I used to have on the show from time to time, uh, when she first started keeping rabbits, she figured out they ate Yapon holly, and she fed them Yapon holly, too much of it. She killed the rabbits. She killed rabbits with Yapon holly. It has caffeine in it. If you feed anything too much caffeine, you'll kill it. Right? And she's very good at what she does. And she was had a very good rabbit system, but she killed some rabbits with it before she realized what was going on. You'll you'll have mistakes. So it's it's better to make small mistakes quickly and learn from them. Because no matter how many podcasts you listen to, no matter how many YouTube videos you watch, there is no substitute for actually getting your hands dirty and getting active and doing it. And you'll learn so much so quick with these small systems because they are so forgiving to your mistakes, but yet you identify and you see the mistake. I planted this thing, and I planted it earlier than I should have, and the first frost killed it even though it was a mild frost. Don't do that again. Or I should have given it some protection. Or what I thought was enough protection wasn't enough protection. I need a heavier level of protection. Or, oh, that greenhouse that I put up, hey, because this happened to me, an ice storm came and made it collapse. So if it's a little inexpensive greenhouse... Then I can reinforce it if I rebuild it or put a new one in. And if I build a big one, I've learned that that is one of the things that can happen. Where if I hadn't had that lower-cost solution that was easy to fail fast with and didn't hurt that bad, I would have had a really expensive damaged system. So just understand. I, I did this today because this is, this is a call to action. And I would say, out of all of them, again, this time of year... A great one to look at is an indoor, small-scale hydro system. And, and really talk yourself off the ledge of, I need to be able to grow 100 plants. I need 100 holes. You probably need 10. Because you can have a little tray, right, that all your little grow plugs go in under one little light that you just keep, you just add a little bit of water to it every day for your starts. And it doesn't even need to go in one of your grow holes. Yes, I said grow hole, <laughs> right? It doesn't need like that's the thing. Like you're, if you have a ten hole system, then a little tiny Tupperware dish with ten plugs in it has your next round of plants ready to go. Well, what if it dries out while I'm on vacation? Well, don't do starts while you're on vacation. You see how it works. Like time your starts so that when you go on vacation, you've just put your little starts into your grow holes. Your grow holes, right? And you don't start new ones, and when you get home, they're all grown out and ready to harvest. Yay. Simple. I would look at that and, and make, and if you don't already have it, setting up those garden beds for next year. What if you already have a small garden? You're like, it's not that productive. Is, is the irrigation automated? Has it, it, have you been putting it to bed for the winter, either cover cropping it or tarping it with, with you know feeding your soil? Get that done. So as you go into next year, you can have a great year. If you, if you think you still have time for a fall garden, that's great. In many climates, you do, especially if you already have the garden built. But if you're going to start a garden from scratch right now, I wouldn't. I would just get it ready for next year. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. I enjoyed doing it. Tomorrow we'll have an expert council Q&A show for you. And uh, then Monday and uh, Monday next week will be a rewind episode. Tuesday will be a live episode. I'll still be here. I won't be up at Self-Reliance Expo yet or Festival yet. Um, and so that's going to be a live episode on Tuesday next week. Then Wednesday through the rest of the week will be Rewinds. I have some really cool ones lined up for you. Then Monday of the following week will also be a Rewind. That will be a Rewind of the show called Remembering Bill Mollison. So if you love permaculture, I think you'll like that. And then Tuesday I'll, next week I'll be back and at it uh, hardcore again uh, after seeing many of you guys at Self-Reliance Festival. And again, on top of all this... 
Saturday morning, the 24th, 9.30 Central Standard Time. Why do I keep saying it? So nobody yells at me that says they didn't know. Uh, tickets for the fall workshop go on sale, will sell out in minutes and be gone. And I'm just going to leave it with that today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, this show sounds better where on Fountain.fm where you can exchange value for value with me and tip me in Satoshis and boost me and stream sats and all that good stuff. Um, really, if you're still listening on Spotify, Apple, whatever, I appreciate it. Thank you. But consider checking out the Fountain app and learning how it works and uh, exchanging value for the value that you receive. Basically, take the show and say, I think that was worth a dollar. It's a lot more Satoshis than you think it is, right? A dollar buys a lot of Satoshis, guys. Um, but not just me, other podcasters. We work hard to do this, especially the podcasters like myself that are out there putting out five shows a week. It's a serious commitment, and uh, we do it because we love what we do. We love our community, we love our audience, and we want to do a good job for you. Uh, and that's why when I go away, I don't just not, not play podcasts when I'm gone. I can't, I can't pre-do five podcasts. I can't do two podcasts a day, you know, every time I travel. But I put the rewinds out. I add new content to them. I try to bring them back around. I know many of you, you know, didn't hear them the first time, and I know I listen to my own podcast and go, "Wow, I forgot that." Um, because value is important on both sides here. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house, the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.